Good evening. It's good to see all of you this evening, all of you that are joining us online. We're so glad that you're with us as well. What a wonderful thing it is to come into God's presence. And he is a holy God. And he is interested in us being holy like him. It's being molded into the image of Jesus Christ. So I invite you to stand and let's worship our holy, incredible God this evening.
we thank you that a holy God like you invites us into your presence and asks us to come to have a relationship with you, to find grace and mercy in time of need. So God, we come right into your throne room this evening, worshiping you for the God that you are, the incredible, indescribable God that we have, that we call, call our good Father. From the highest of heights to the depths of the
He's that great, incredible God. Pray this prayer from the depths of your heart. Lord, I need you.
Well, if you would, open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians. As we continue on our journey through the Bible, I want to uh, encourage you to think about something that we're going to be doing October 2nd, actually for a couple weeks. You've heard about us talk about it. It's a trick to visit the seven churches. Asia Minor, being able to go to the churches there in Turkey. So we're going to be going to Turkey and then also to Rome. And as God would have it, we're going to be studying all of those churches here probably the next year or so. So I would encourage you, if you have the opportunity, um, check it out. You can check it out on the church website, get plugged in, get signed up. There's still some spaces available. Not going to be a, a, a huge group that's going. Uh, we have nine that are going. I think we'll probably be about 11 here in a couple weeks. Uh, there's another couple that's going. But I want to encourage you to think about going because it is uh, really an amazing, amazing trip. And just being able to see there are more uh, Christian sites of the early church there in the area of Turkey than you even find in Israel. And so we'll be able to see a lot of really neat things. Tonight we're going to be picking up here in Second Corinthians. I chose to go in there because we're going to be picking up into that. But I wanted to kind of just refresh your mind of the ministry of Paul uh, to here in Corinth. I'm going to read a section out of Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Just to kind of refresh your memory on the birth of the church here. It says, And after these things he left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working for by the trade as tent makers. And as he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath, and trying to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews and to, that Jesus was the Christ. And when they resisted and blasphemed, he, they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on I'll go to the Gentiles. And then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus, Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, who believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and be baptized. Now, the reason why I share that with you is because from the birth of the church of Corinth to the time that we find ourselves now, there was some difficulties. The church was born in a time um, when there was contention within this, and, and they grew, but as they grew, they also had allowed some other things to happen within Corinth. They, Paul would not become so favorable in their eyes. They would allow some other teachers to come in. Paul had been working with the Gentiles and really trying to convince the Jews to come to faith, and some of them were, some of them weren't, but a lot of Gentiles were, and so there was this movement of, of evangelism that was going on there in Corinth. And as he was sharing the gospel, many were coming to faith. Paul had written previous letters, a couple that were lost. We have 1 Corinthians and we have 2 Corinthians. And we're not quite sure what was where those letters were, but we do know that Paul is answering questions based on those previous letters. Now, Paul is on a mission tour and he's going through Macedonia, and one of the things he's doing is checking on the churches that were started. 
He's encouraging the saints. He's trying to evangelize where he can. And he's also gathering funds from those churches to bring those funds back to the church of Jerusalem that was being persecuted at that time. And many of them were needing those monies. Some of the things that in 1 Corinthians that Paul dealt with was some of the misbehavior of the people. Now, Paul started the church. And so he was, in essence, the father of the church or, or, or getting the church going. They felt that he was the one, the go-to guy. And his plan originally was to go to Corinth after traveling through Macedonia. So he would go up through, out of Asia Minor, up through Macedonia, and then he'd be able to come down and, and, and make that visit uh, within there. He had sent Timothy ahead of him in the second trip to see how things were going. And he got some word back, and it wasn't very favorable within that. One of the challenges that Paul had in coming back into the church was he was going to have to defend himself against the enemies that were now embedded in the church, the naysayers, the ones that were splitting and tearing the church apart because of, of their false doctrine and, and the challenges. Now, the community of Corinth was thriving, but as any movement, it turns into a machine. And that machine, as I said, was getting so big they got full of themselves. Is it dangerous when a Christian becomes full of themselves? Sure it does. Right, because there's the, they no longer have the fear of the Lord. They no longer have the freshness of the Spirit. They no longer are listening to, to what's going on. And so if we were to take a look at this church chronologically, we would say that these guys were acting like teenagers. You ever try to tell a teenager something? No. It's interesting how that happens. And so they had gotten to this place where they thought that they knew more than Paul in many ways. And so as Paul was answering these questions, he's actually confronting some of the sin that was going on, hopefully, that they were going to deal with them. But in the absence of good leadership, what happens? This reversion, this vacuum happens, and then people go back to their old ways. Or false leaders and bad leaders come in. And then they cause problems, many of which were self-appointed leaders. If, if you, know, you look at this and it's like, well, who made you my boss? I'll be my own boss. And so there were some of those conversations that were happening. And so as Paul is writing this letter of 2 Corinthians, he's, he's writing it with the anticipation of coming and visiting. To be able to come to you and we're going to square some things up, get, get some of this... Um, the sin dealt with, and some of the behaviors that were going on within this. And for the most part, after the first letter, the church of Corinth, they calmed down. But there was still some unfinished business to take care of, and then there was the business of the collection that was going on. One of the challenges that is a thread between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians is the challenge of Paul's, what we would call, apostolic authority. They didn't really want to recognize, or at least some of them didn't want to recognize Paul's apostolic authority. In other words, that he was really an apostle appointed by God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so they were questioning that, that authority within that. And so that was part of it. One of the other things, the doctrines that had gotten into the church was, this idea that if you're suffering, 
that suffering is not part of God's will. And, and that's a challenge. They, they thought, well, if you're suffering, it's really not God's will for you to suffer. And so they only wanted the religion or the part of the religion that made them feel good. Now, do we, we don't have that problem today, do we? And, and so there's a challenge because if you're a Christ follower and you're suffering, well, I don't want that religion. Just tell me the good stuff. Tell me the stuff that makes me feel positive about myself. Tell me the stuff, even if you have to lie to me, tell me the good stuff that I can think well about myself and those things. And, and so within this, we've got to understand that, especially in tonight's study, the Christian journey is not easy. In fact, it's full of suffering. Expect it. And expect, if, if you're suffering, that's going to be part of the Christian journey. And if there's oppression from Satan, that's going to be part of the journey. The godly life is not always the good life. If anybody has told you become a Christian and your life will be perfect, <laughs> run. Because they got some whacked theology. The, the godly life is not, is not always the good life. And it's not always the easy life. But the godly life is the holy life. The life that is acceptable to God. And you can expect persecution if you're going to live the godly life and the whole life. And it will be tough. And so Paul is moving through that. So we're going to do the introduction. We'll do chapters 1 and 2 as we move through this. He starts out, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is in Corinth, with all the saints are all throughout Achaia. So we, it's a typical greeting, a Pauline greeting, but it's a little bit different because he doesn't add the word peace. Typically, he would say grace and peace. But in this, he, he basically comes in and, and just addresses the church straight up. Why? Because he's got to correct some behavior with them. It's, it, this is a, a corrective letter. Um, and in a typical fashion, as... Most of the writers would write, they would always write with the author of the letter and his credentials. Now question, what does the first verse tell us about Paul and, and his credentials? It tells us that Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. Now I read earlier, he started the church. Do you really think that Paul needs to reintroduce himself as an apostle by the will of God? He does if he is going to be corrective. Because this establishes his authority to be corrective. Grace and peace is not in there. That's a clue. I'm bringing down the hammer. And I am an apostle or this apostolic authority, an apostle of Messiah Jesus by the will of God, not self-appointed like a bunch of you knuckleheads. I am appointed by the will of God within this. And these deceptive leaders in Corinth were not ordained by God, and they were causing all kinds of problems. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, Paul would say to the church of Galatia, he said, But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb, and called me through His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me, so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I didn't immediately consult with flesh and blood. 
Paul there, he says, when was I ordained by God for this job? At birth. God had preordained for him to, for this apostleship. It was God's will, which is a huge, huge thing for us. Because when we think about the predestination of God's plan for our life, God has foreordained for us to do things within this. Now, did Paul come out of the womb and start preaching right away? No. No. He grew up and he grew up and was schooled in the things that, that all Jewish rabbis would be schooled in and he would learn and he would grow and then he would become an enemy of the church. Okay, well, how? How does that work with God ordaining him from the womb and to be an apostle did God allow the persecution of the church at the hand of Paul or Saul? Absolutely. Because that was part of God writing Paul's testimony within this. By the will of God. For the end means to be a preacher of Christ. Why? So Paul can preach grace. So Paul could understand grace. Paul understood grace probably better than anybody else in the New Testament church. Because he realized what a wretch he was. And in the contrast, and God still chose him. So he could preach grace because he understood grace. Much of the journey and much of the suffering that Paul would go through that we're going to read through is ordained by God. You say, well, that's not very nice. It's part of the testimony that God has established. And Paul understood that. In Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, Paul would write, But the Lord said to him, or Luke would write, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is chosen instrument of me to bear my name before the Gentiles, and for the kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. That's after Paul had gotten knocked off his horse. He was made blind. He's go to Anna's house and he, and he says, take him in. Well, he's a murderer. I don't want to take him in. No, go because he's been chosen. I can tell you this. God does not make mistakes. He knows exactly who he wants, where, why, when, and how to get him there with the end goal in mind in doing that. And so Paul speaks from a position of authority. Paul, yes, did know the grace of God. But what else did Paul know? Paul knew the will of God. Because as he looks in the rearview mirror of his life, he can see how God had foreordained all of the events in his life to take him to that place. So with great confidence, he is going against these naysayers, the self-appointed leaders in Corinth that were causing a problem... And he can write that correction within this. In Paul's mind, as Paul is speaking, they should be hearing God himself speaking because Paul is the conduit by which God is speaking to this church. It's interesting that he notes Timothy there. Why does he note Timothy as a co-author? Well, some people would say Timothy helped write it. Could be. But also, if you remember what I said in the introduction, Timothy had gone ahead of him, understood what was going back, and gave to Paul a report, which expedited Paul's need to get over to Corinth to be able to take care of some of this business. Who's the recipients of this letter? 
the church, ecclesia. Ecclesia is Greek. It means those that are called out. Those that are called out of Corinth, the saints, through all, with all the saints of Kai. In, in other words, all of these people that are there, the chosen people, God's holy people, with the Christian church. Why would Paul include with this to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all of the saints who are all throughout the Kai? Ever wonder why he included that? If he's writing to the church of Corinth, why don't you just write to the church of Corinth? Another problem that happens with a self-centered church is they think that they are the only ones. And so he includes this in this universal church or the church that is there. You are only part of a church. There is a church universal, a larger group of believers their mind, they were the only legitimate church. Is that dangerous? Absolutely it is. It creates a sense of silo ministries and elitism. And it should never be. So Paul writes this introduction to these people. And he starts right in and he wants to give to them some, some expressions of, of suffering this is what it's costing for me to go there. This is, this is what I'm experiencing within this. In verses 3 through 11, he says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. While I read this, count how many times the word comfort comes up. Father of all mercies and God of all comforts, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is in abundance through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is not for your comfort and salvation, or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same suffering which we also suffer. And our hope is for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers in suffering, so also you are sharers in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we have sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from the great peril of death, and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us, you also joining and helping us through your prayers, so that many thanks will be given by many persons on our behalf, for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. What do you think his big idea was in this? What was the word that kept coming up? How many times? How many? Ten. Ten times. We look at that and we see comfort in there. One of the things that he comes in, he says, blessed. That word blessed, we get our word, uh, this Eucharist, this blessed, speak well of. Blessed, it's praise. Blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ of mercies and the God of all comforts. Now, again, this is a guy that understands grace. He understands the will of God. And he understands what comfort from God is. Why? Because repetitively he got whooped on. 
This is a guy that you think you have a bad, you've got nothing on Paul. And he, he's praising God, the God who comforts. But the question is, how does he bring comfort? How does he bring comfort? That word comfort, we translate the word comfort, but in Greek the word is periklesos. Pericle. It is, in, it, it is probably better translated encouragement. How does God bring comfort? He brings comfort through encouragement. What is Satan's greatest tool in his toolbox? Discouragement. What does discouragement mean? The removal of courage. If Satan can rob you of your courage, does he win? Yes. And so you can get beat up, you can, you can <clears throat> lose all kinds of things, you can get bad health, bad economy, and all these things, and you can walk around like Eeyore. <laughs> Sun shining outside. Yeah, I'm going to get burned. <laughs> Raining outside. Yeah, we're going to flood. Look at all the food. Yeah, I'm going to get fat. This is a guy who can't find anything right. Discouraged, depressed. We think about this whole idea, and if Paul had any reason to quit the ministry, he should have. But he didn't. If he had any reason to quit life, he should have. But he didn't. And you've got to ask the question, how does a guy keep going like Paul and doesn't quit? Because he has a connection with the God of all comforts or the God of all encouragement. Hear me clearly. If you're looking to be encouraged by anybody or anything else than God, you are going to be sadly, sadly disappointed. God is the only source for encouragement. The only source for comfort. It's not your friends, your family, your wife, your job, your dog, or fishing poles. None of it. God is the only one that can encourage you. And so with this verse appearing ten times in this, as he's writing to the church of Corinth, he's saying, look, at, I am highly encouraged by God within this. And when God provides that encouragement in time of, of affliction, here's the outcome. You develop bandwidth in order to testify to that encouragement. What does he say? The God of all comforts with comforts us in our affliction so that. That word so that is a henna clause. It means purpose. So that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort or the encouragement with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Sometimes you can be so destitute of uh, courage. You can be so discouraged that you are so disconnected you go, I can't even hear God. Does that happen? Sure it does. 
That's when a brother or sister needs to come along and say, hey, look it. You can find your encouragement with God because this is how God encouraged me in a situation like this. You and I should never be the crutch of encouragement. We should be a signpost that points people to God the encourager. If you are so discouraged you're having a hard time hearing from God, then listen to the testimony of somebody else. And that somebody else should tell you to find your encouragement from God via the Holy Spirit. God provides encouragement in these times and afflictions so that you will have the bandwidth and the confidence to bring the encourager to these people. As God writes the testimonies in your life. So that you can encourage one another within this. God may not always remove your affliction, but He will always provide encouragement. God may not take you out of the difficulty of the suffering, but He will provide you encouragement to make it through. Paul knew persecutions and afflictions. All you have to do is read throughout the book of Acts in his journeys. He had people plotting against him. He was caught in riots. He suffered beatings. He was stoned to death. Mob violence, put in jail. All of these afflictions that were there. And Paul's response to the afflictions was this. Take a stand. And stand with courage within this. Paul would write this in verse 5, For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is in abundance for Christ. Where did Paul look to find the foundation for that? He looked at the encouragement that Jesus got during his time of affliction that he received from his Father. The connection that he had. We can stand when we stand on Christ and in Christ. These afflictions are normal for our lives. We've got to expect them. Now, mind you, Paul is not speaking of just general normal afflictions. If you wake up with a sore back, that's not the kind of affliction that Paul's talking about. He's talking about the afflictions specifically that come as a result of being a witness for Christ. By taking that, that stand and that testimony. Why is he bringing this out? He's bringing this out because many within the Corinthian church were plotting to bring affliction and suffering. They weren't taking value for what he was doing. The other part is he's establishing a foundation of love. These are all the things that I'm going through to bring the gospel to you. And if I didn't care about you, then why am I going through this? We've got to understand that, that Paul found his foundation of encouragement in Christ. As just as the sufferings of Christ are ours, these afflictions, just as Jesus was persecuted, so we will be. In abundance... But our comfort is abundant through Christ. Why? Because Jesus has gone through everything that we will ever go through. 
And He can bring that encouragement to you personally. Thomas A. Kempis wrote this, A human comfort is vain and short. When you rely on people for your encouragement, it will be vain or empty and very short-lived. But if you remain under the flow of encouragement of the Holy Spirit via Christ and, and God, you will be encouraged perpetually and draw that strength. The other thing about afflictions, the side note is this. Afflictions are going to deepen your faith. In James chapter 1, verses 2 and four, two through 4, it says this. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that, there's that henna clause again, so that you may be perfect, literally telos, complete, lacking nothing. Count in all joy when you go through various trials. Why? Because it's building endurance and it's building strength. That's huge when we think about this. It is strengthening your faith. We should not run away from afflictions, but embrace them. You know, Carrie, that's weird. Thank you, may I have another. The whole idea is this is it's through these times of stretching that our faith grows. Because what happens is Satan wants to stop you. You realize that you're under persecution as unto the Lord. And you say, I'm not going to quit. God, I need some encouragement now. You receive the encouragement. You endure the trial. You get back on the other side and you look backwards and you go, wow, that was a tough one. Let's get ready for the next one. And you work through that within this. I love the fact that in this whole section, Paul does not try to explain suffering. So many times when afflictions and suffering happens, we say, why? Paul doesn't do that. Paul accepts it. As from the Lord. Why? Because he's already experienced the grace, and he knows that he is where he is by the will of God. Therefore, based on the abundance grace and the will of God and the present endurance and encouragement, he just marches on through. That's huge. That is huge. And so in this, he just sees it as a blessing within this. Because the comfort that he receives comes directly from God himself and that strengthens his relationship. Again, it's that vertical connection. If you're relying on other people, you are not going to develop the ability to endure suffering. If you rely upon God, you will. And so Jesus brings that comfort in every way, experiencing everything. And Paul sees this as being all part of the gospel. Notice what he says in verse 6. But if we are afflicted, and we are... It is for your comfort and your salvation, or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in, in patient endurance of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope is for you, is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of the suffering, so also you are sharers of our comfort. In other words, we are going through this for you. How? Well, as a spiritual leader, I am growing in my faith. I'm growing in my suffering. I'm growing in my affliction, which equips me to be a better leader to bring that information 
and that testimony to you. By which then what happens? You grow. And I'm going through this for your benefit. So if we get comforted, then I can turn around and I can bring that comfort to you. And so within this, we see Paul saying, this is for you. I'm sure Paul could have had a better job doing a whole lot of other things. But he doesn't. He's the servant of God and he's embracing the gospel. Why? Because he's missional. Missional living means you will suffer, but missional living means that you also have the the bandwidth by which you can share the gospel to people. And that's okay. In fact, that's your calling, is to go and to make disciples. And you'll share suffering in the the process of that. And, And we think about this, that... God has has given us that opportunity and that privilege. You think about how many people are put to death, even today. Christians all over the world getting put to death. What would say to somebody, please sign me up to go inside a country that hates God, that threatens to put me to death for the gospel's sake? Who does that? Only someone that knows the grace of God. Only someone that accepts the will of God. And only someone who is experiencing the comfort and transformational work of God. They're changed from the inside out. Those are the people that do this. And Paul's hope was that the ones that were benefiting from the gospel would also receive the ability to share the gospel. That they would share in the blessing. One of the things that Paul needed to do as he sets the stage is the Jerusalem church is suffering the persecution. And as he comes to Corinth to get finances to take back, that they would also understand the depth of suffering within this. Paul was passionate for his ministry. Look at verses 8 to 17. He says, For we don't want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despair even to life. In other words, he he was talking about this time when he was moving through Asia and all the trials that he had. Asia was this whole Roman province that was on the western part of Asia Minor. The lands that would go all the way to the Aegean Sea, Ephesus would be more or less the center point of that. He would spend much time there. He doesn't give details about the suffering. I love the fact when Paul gives a testimony, he doesn't turn it into a woe is me. He doesn't give all the gory details that goes along. He just says, we got our lunch handed to us. And it was tough. We suffered all of these physical illnesses, these dangers, these persecutions. He doesn't do that. But even though Paul doesn't do it in this letter, we do have an account of some of them. For example, do you know that Paul was depressed Suffered depression. In Athens, he was there. And, and, and other times. And you say, well, how did Paul suffer depression? Well, the, the problem is, he, and he alludes to it, he says, our hearts felt the sentence of death. My heart felt like it was dying. That's depression. You mean Paul felt depressed at times? Yes. you imagine Working like crazy to share the gospel and no one wants to hear it. 
No one wants to hear the gospel. Working really hard in areas and sharing the gospel and no fruit. No one's coming to faith. Nothing happening. Nobody's showing up. Why am I doing this? And we think, we think of this, this heart feeling the, the sentence of death, as he says. It was as bad as the afflictions, the physical afflictions he was going through. And in Acts chapter 19, verses 20 to, uh, 23 to 20, you can read it later, but you look at it, and he was in a riot in Ephesus. For preaching, he denounced idolatry. And, and there in, in, in 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty-two, we read, read about him fighting the wild beasts there where he was working through that. And so those that were there being caught in the middle of a riot. And if you've ever been in Near Eastern culture, and I have, when things get crazy, and they do, we were overlooking, we were on the Mount of Olives, and it was evening, and we were overlooking um, the Eastern Gate. The bus pulled up, this was years ago. And it was on one of our Israel trips. And we get out, and... Whenever they see the tour bus, they come flocking. And there's people, and they're selling their pictures, and they're selling their trinkets and all of this stuff. And all of a sudden, our tour bus was just surrounded with people. My wife was there. My daughter, Megan, was with us on this trip. The guy came in with his camel pushing, and, and, our, our tour, and a taxi guy came in. And then our bus driver got into an argument with one of the guys. And it started getting bad, and it started getting rough. And we're like, uh, we need to go in our tour guide. Moshe, he goes, you need to get on the bus now. What do you mean? No, you need to get on the bus now. And they don't know personal space. When they get into an argument in Near Eastern culture, they are like this. And they're on top of each other. Can you imagine being Paul, preaching the gospel and, and sharing it and saying, you know, they're in Ephesus you all are worshiping false gods. And to the silversmiths and all that, you, you idol makers and you're horrible people and just all of this stuff. Trying to put, you're trying to put us out of business? We're not going out of business. You're going to die. And, and all of this starts. That didn't stop, Paul. Reoccurring illnesses. Some even close to, to being fatal. We don't know what his illness was. Some people think it was malaria. Others, they don't know. We're not quite sure what it is. But we do know, based on 2 Corinthians 12, 7, that he had a thorn, what he would call a thorn in the flesh. And it was part of the reason why he wasn't able to get down into Corinth as quick as he wanted to, because he had a reoccurrence of this. We also know that he was beaten. In 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four. 24, he says, Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. You do the math. Five times 39. And Paul was not a big guy. He was a small guy. Can you imagine? All of that for the sake of the gospel. Yet in all of these sufferings, Paul did not give up. He did not quit. Why? Because he, le he believed that the power of the gospel was the power of God unto salvation. To anyone that would believe and it was his calling. Why was he so driven? Because he understood what grace was. He understood the will of God in his calling. And he understood it didn't matter how bad it got, God would encourage him. But it wasn't always a happy time. It wasn't always a pleasant time. 
And so within this, whether it was the peril of death or any of these other things that were going on, he understood that the sufficiency of God was great. One of the aspects that he brings to us is this, verse 9, so that we don't trust in ourselves. What is a value in affliction and suffering? One of the values is this, God will break you down so that you stop trying to trust in yourself. You cannot receive encouragement from God if you're already encouraging yourself. You cannot receive encouragement from God if you're trying to find encouragement from all of these other places or people. The sufficiency of God is only realized when we declare ourselves insufficient. You guys get that? The only way I'm going to know the sufficiency of God is when I say, God, I can't. And we watch Him work. And God, as Paul would say, and then God who delivered us, notice in verse 10, from so great a death and will deliver us. What is the death, the so great a death that, that God has delivered us from? Eternal death. If God has loved you so much and saved you from eternal death, that's what he says, who delivered us, past tense, heiress specifically, from so great a death and will, future tense, deliver us. What was Paul hanging on to for encouragement? If God saved me unto eternity in an eternal state, and I'm already saved in that eternal state, if God has already done that, then why wouldn't He save me right now? And so in Paul's theology, he says, God's got this. God has this. And so his, his focus is on God's great salvation that provides hope for a temporal salvation. Getting us through this, whatever this might be. Lastly, before we go into the next section, look at verse 11. One of the keys that Paul writes about and leans into the believers that would read this letter is what he leaned into was intercessory prayer. Where else can I find encouragement? Here's how you find encouragement. Believers praying for other believers. Knowing that you have a prayer team praying for you. Know that you've got this band of warriors that are praying on your behalf for you. Brings encouragement. Why? Because they're rattling. They're rattling the gates of hell. They're standing watch over you. Praying and garrison over you. While you go through your difficulty. You're not alone. He says, you also joining in helping us through your prayers. So that thanks may be given by many persons. We are going through this together. The other thing that Paul says is, when I'm suffering, I'm not the only one. The whole body's going through it with me. I may be feeling it, but they're praying me out of it. And that's the key. And so it's encouraging to know that intercessory prayer is going on. Paul goes on and talks about more about his ministry and this confidence. He says, for our proud confidence is this. The testimony of our conscience, that in holiness, in godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially towards you. We write nothing else to you other than 
what you read and understand, and I hope you will understand until the end, just as you have partially did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud of as you are ours in the day of the Lord. In this confidence, I intended at first to come to you so that you might twice receive a blessing. That is, to pass your way into Macedonia and again from Macedonia to come back to you uh, to be helped by my journey to Judea. Therefore, I was not vacillating when I intended to do this, was I? Or what purpose do I purpose according to the flesh? So that with me will be a yes, a yes, and a no, that's no at the same time. But as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God in Christ, who is preached among us, by, by me and Sylvanius and Timothy, was not yes and no, but yes in him. For as many are uh, the promises of God in him, they are yes. Therefore also through him is our amen to the glory of God. Now he who is able, or I'm sorry, he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us in God, who has also sealed us and gave us his spirit in our hearts as a pledge. But I call God as a witness to my soul that to spare you I did not come again into Corinth, not that we lorded over your faith, but are workers with you for your joy and in your faith for your standing. So one of the things that Paul brings out is the confidence of his position in ministry. And who is he within this? Well, one of the things he says is that he's proud and, and he's confident in this, that the testimony of our conscience. You know me. I've been with you multiple times. And, and you understand the ministry that's going on. Paul wants to be seen as a brother and an apostle and one who loves them. But the hurt that he has right now is that they're rejecting him. I'm confident in what I'm doing. I'm confident in my calling. Why are you rejecting me? All I want is a strong, positive relationship with you. Why should I have to prove myself again to you? It's interesting how deceivers can come in and cause question for leadership, especially established leadership. These deceivers that were coming in and, and calling into question Paul's character, and Paul's like, why do I got to prove myself again to you? This is Within this, he, he, it's not an arrogance that he has, it's just a confidence. And what he wants them to understand is, is just to appreciate the ministry. Not looking for accolades, just say thank you. He, he's writing in such a manner that he wants them to understand. So in verse 13, it's kind of a Pauline way of saying, just so that there's no misunderstanding, I want to be clear. I want to be clear. And I want you to know that there is clarity. I hope you'll understand until the end. But there is some kind of misunderstanding, verse 14. And I want to be proud of you, and I want you to be proud of me within this. I, I want to take pride. I want to build you up. Not boasting about their achievements as they're some great church, but just boasting about the brotherhood that they have, the relationship that they have, and the challenge. It appears that there was some kind of misunderstanding that was going on, and Paul wanted to be able to present them with great pride. Notice in verse 14, in the day of the Lord. What's the day of the Lord? 
The day of the Lord is the day that, that we would stand in the end, standing before the Lord. And, and what Paul says, and in the end, when we're all standing there, I want to be proud of you. It's graduation day. I want to say, well done, and look, at this is, this is our church. I want to finish well. Paul had plans, and he goes over these plans to be able to do this. He says, I want to come, and I intended to come to you so that you might be twice receive the blessing. Well, you know, there's a lot of people that go, well, what was the blessing? And it could read that I would come twice to you, and there would actually be two offerings taken up, two blessings that would go out to Jerusalem. I tend to take it as the blessing of the opportunity to be encouraged one to another. Personal presence to Paul, to be able to be in, to, in, in that place. And he wanted to give them these trips. He had an earlier trip, in, earlier in 1 Corinthians 16, uh, 5 through 9, you can read about, Paul laid out his travel plans. But when Timothy's report came back in 1 Corinthians 4, 17, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, yeah, 4, 17, it wasn't quite as good. And so he decided that uh, he needed to come back and, and things had gotten worse. Second Corinthians chapter twelve twenty one. in this letter, this letter that we're reading right now, he says, I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past, note, and not repented of the impurity, immoral, immorality, sexuality, which they have practiced. I'm concerned. What was Paul's concern? When I get there, some of you have not changed. In fact, some of you have not repented. Can you imagine the heart of Paul? I've written to you. I've encouraged you. I've sent people to talk to you. When I get there, really, I've got to do this. As a parent, disciplining your kids is not fun especially when they have a chronic rebellion. When they are chronically in that place and you have to deal with them time and time again. Isn't it fatiguing? And, and, and you almost feel bad. I've had parents tell me, good, godly parents, tell me, I don't think I can do ministry because of my kids. I think I'm disqualified. Because my kids, they are just out there. And I've done everything I could, but they are just rebellious. I feel humiliated. Can you imagine Paul, the apostle? I can't correct these people. I feel like a failure. Have you ever felt like that? Where you've done everything you could... And nothing changes. That's Paul in this writing. I don't want to get there and have that happen. Please. He knows that they're the enemies. In fact, he anticipates their statement. He says, in anticipation, when I get there, I know you think that I'm wishy-washy. I know you... I'm not wishy-washy. God's in charge of my calendar. My yes is my yes, and my no is no. I don't take these commitments lightly. But God changed Paul's plans. Paul also looked at 
his exposure to the church and what would happen if he went multiple times, maybe it'll create more of a problem. But what does he learn? That God's always faithful. God is always faithful. In fact, Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of a man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? God doesn't change his mind. We do the best to set a plan. But is it, is it a divine prerogative for God to change our plans? Absolutely. With that. But the enemies would say, why should we believe Paul? Why should we believe his gospel? Because <clears throat> he can't make up his mind. Well, one of the things that he establishes is, yes, you can trust the gospel. Why? Because I preached it, verse 19. Timothy preached this and Silas preached it. So don't lay that on, on the gospel and don't lay it on God just because I needed to change my travel plans. But they, again, they were trying to discredit him. And within this, we understand that God is goddess. What else would he, did he want him to understand? This is kind of a benediction in verses 20, uh, 21 on. He says, Now he who is able, who has established us with you in Christ Jesus and anoint us, who has sealed us and gave us the, the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. It, it's kind of this mini benediction. In other words, he says, now to God, this is unto God who has sealed us. Do you realize that if you're a Christ follower, you're sealed by God? I don't know where that seal is. I don't know if it's on your forehead or wherever it is. But I know that you're sealed. What does the seal mean? Well, in Near Eastern culture, any document that, was, that had value had wax put upon it, and a signet ring was impressed into it, and the seal was there. And only the one that had ownership could break the seal or remove that seal. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.30 says, Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by, which, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Sealed for the day of redemption within that. What a blessing to know that you're sealed. And God's the only one that can, can break that seal. And so Paul says to them, Look it. I call on God as my witness soul that... To spare you, I did not come. In other words, I don't want to create more problems than it's worth within this. And so he pulls back his trip. He changes his plan. Why? Because he doesn't want to lord it over them. He doesn't want to get there and provoke anger. But there is correction coming. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12 says, My son, don't reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, and even as a father corrects his son in his delight. So Paul wanted to give time. What did Paul want to give time for? The letter. Question. Is it better that they self-correct? Or is it better for Paul to come in and bring the correction? It's better to self-correct. It's better to be forewarned, make the self-correction, and make the adjustment so that, why? Paul doesn't have to come in and take care of things within that. So that's why he says in verses 2 through 4, he says, But I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. He wants to come in joy, because if he comes in sorrow, he's going to have to punish them. For if I cause you sorrow, then who makes me glad? 
and I will be sorrowful. For this very thing I wrote to you, so that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you, all that my joy would be the joy for you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I especially have for you. That's the love of a dad, isn't he? I don't want to come and spank you. Just do the right thing. Have you ever told your kids that? I hope so. I don't, want, I don't want to have to come and discipline you. I want to have joy when we get together. And you see this, this heart of a father that is going on. He wants to be in that, that place. Paul changes gears a little bit in this letter. As an example of what they were messing up, they needed to forgive. In verses 5 through 11, he says this, But, is, but if any has caused sorrow... He has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much to you all. Sufficient for such a one is the punishment which was inflicted by the majority. So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. There's that word comfort again. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end, I wrote you that you might uh, that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things, but one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken uh, of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his scheme. So what is he saying here? Well, here's an example of handling your own business. If you remember earlier on in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5, there was a man that was living in the church and he was living with his stepmother. And the church out of pride was saying, hey, this look at us. We are so free. We're so accepting. And the guy was in blatant sin, adultery. Paul says, what are you doing? Discipline him. You're not being loving. Discipline him. Put him out. Correct him so he'll learn not to sin. Don't tolerate it. Well, the church took it a little bit overboard. They put him out, but they never brought him back. What is the purpose of discipline? Correction and restoration. It's not meant to be punitive. The whole purpose of discipline was correction and restoration. But they were so full of themselves. Look at us. We took care of sin. Meanwhile, what happened to this guy? This guy was put out and he was repentant, but not allowed to come back, even though he was repentant. Was that right or wrong? Wrong. They were exasperating his sorrow within this. And so we know that they needed to forgive and bring comfort to the one who repents. Forgive and give comfort to the one who repents. Why? For restoration. C.S. Lewis once wrote, We all agree that forgiveness is a beautiful idea until we have to practice it. <laughs> that is so true. I really like this idea of forgiveness when it works on me. Uh, but when it works on you, not so much. 
The minister of gospel of Jesus is the minister of reconciliation. And forgiveness is that. Do you realize what forgiveness and redemption does? It breaks the binds that Satan has on a person. When you forgive and you reconcile, you break the chains of guilt that Satan holds on that individual. They can be repentant and they can, they can say, I'm sorry, and they can be right with God, but if you don't reconcile with that person, they still feel like they're under the bondage of the guilt of their sin. And so Paul says, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Satan will take advantage of guilt. And he'll hang on to that guilt and he'll say, you know what, they didn't forgive you. You are not reconciled to God. You are so bad, you are so rotten. You can never come back. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Romans 8.1 says this, there is now no condemnation. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul finishes out this letter with the rest of his travel plans that's in there, after dealing with this, this one restoration piece, he says, Now when I came to Troas for the gospel, and when the door was opened for me to the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother there. Taking leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. In other words, he was traveling, he gets to Troas, um, really Alexandria of Troas. He's looking for Titus, can't find Titus. And you know what Paul does? Which is kind of cool, because he's still Paul. He, he's just, he, he does this. This is what Paul does. Go and wait for Titus at the, at the seaport. Okay, I'm going and I'm waiting. He's got five minutes, then I'm going to go start evangelizing. And that's what he does. Titus in here. I'm going to go evangelize. He goes evangelize. Then he gets on a boat, goes to Macedonia within this. Why? Because he couldn't help himself but preach. And so he goes on and then goes to Macedonia. But in verse 14, he says, But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph. In Christ and manifest through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are, note, fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are, be, are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death and the other, an aroma from life to life. And who's adequate, who's adequate for these things? Rhetorical question, those that are in Christ. No man in himself, for we are not like many peddling the word of God, but in sincerity from God we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Paul ends on a high note, at least in this section, with praise. God, thank you. Thank you that I smell like Jesus. We're an aroma of Christ to God. Think about that phrase. You're an aroma, a sweet fragrance of Christ to God. What was the ministry of Christ? The ministry of reconciliation and redemption. When you evangelize and you are sharing the gospel, God's going, smells like my son down there. Now, to the dying... Not so much. But to the living, absolutely within us. And how do we do that? 
we keep serving, we keep praying, we keep asking God, make me more like Jesus. Not like those, verse 17, who are, note, peddling the word. Merchandising the word. Playing the game. He gets that little into the church of Corinth going, there's some fake people out there. How do I know the difference between real and fake? Do they smell like Jesus? Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you that we can come before you and we can honor you with their word and our lives. Lord, I know that you're doing that work in our hearts. Help us to be like Paul, focused on the ministry and the gospel and present that gospel everywhere we can. Lord, we know that in this world there will be suffering and affliction, but you are the God of all comforts that encourages us in these times. May we find that encouragement in you. Lord, I thank you that you have given us great grace, called by your will, and will encourage us as the days are approaching. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand we'll close with the song.
benediction. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone works wonders, and blessed be his glorious name forever. And may the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. And praise Jesus. Have a great weekend. We'll see you on Sunday. for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 6.30 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scapoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.